0: Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rodner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping in our usual slot this week on Thursday, August 9th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news can happen fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hello. Margot Sangercat to The New York Times. Good morning. And Kimberly Leonard of The Washington Examiner. Hi. So we are looking forward to our special Ask Us Anything episode coming up later this month. We've already gotten some good questions, but we could use more. Is there some health policy quirk you've always wondered about? Something complicated you want explained? Send us your questions. We're at What the Health, all one word, at kff.org. Maybe we will use your question on our special podcast. In the meantime, let's get to the news. I actually want to start this week with something that happened after we taped last week, the Trump administration's rule allowing the broad expansion of so-called short-term limited duration insurance plans. I want to talk about what we've seen in terms of reaction since the plan was announced. But, Margot, will you first briefly explain what these plans are and how will they change under this new regulation? Yeah, these were a kind of plan that were carved out from a lot of the rules in the Affordable Care Act. So the
1: Affordable Care Act basically said, if you're selling medical insurance, here's a whole list of consumer protections you have to attach to them. They have to cover a standard set of benefits. They can't have a cap on how much they will pay for your medical care in a year. They have to charge the same price to everyone in the same area of the same age. Uh, And these were seen as an exception that people who had, you know, brief, stops between insurance, maybe they lost one job, they were about to start a new one, and they wanted to buy something short term, could buy a plan that didn't have to follow all those rules. It was a little bit skimpier. And what the Trump administration has done is they've taken this kind of small, small, piece of the market that was intended for short-term use. And they're trying to make it a more mainstream part of the health insurance market, because it's a way that insurance companies can offer plans that are a little skimpier in various ways. So an important one is that they can discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions, either by saying, we'll cover you, but we won't cover your asthma, or by just saying, "Eh, you have asthma, we don't want to offer you insurance at all. And so the consequence of – so there's that. And then there's also they can cover fewer benefits. So we – because we have short-term plans in the market right now, we sort of know what they look like, and they tend not to cover – Maternity care, uh, prescription drugs, mental health treatment, addiction treatment. And then there's like all kinds of weird small exceptions, too. Like they won't cover injuries, uh, sustained playing competitive sports.
0: So if you have like, some a, of us at this table, I <laughs> think that could be a problem.
1: So but like even like if you have like a soccer league that you play in, you know, with your friends, that's like, a, you know, community softball game or something like that. And you, you know. T- your ACL, you're out of luck. So, uh, for those reasons, because they cover fewer benefits and because they don't have to cover people who are sick, they're a lot cheaper. And so, the expectation is that if you're someone who is healthy, doesn't have any kind of health problem, and you're having a hard time affording Affordable Care Act coverage, and we know that there are a lot of people like that, we've seen declining enrollment in the kind of fully regulated health insurance plans among people who are higher income. Um, that this could be an option for them. And I think the Trump administration feels that there are a lot of people who are priced out of the current market and should have more choice. Maybe they want a skimpier plan that they can afford as opposed to being uninsured or paying, you know, a really, really high price for a plan that's more comprehensive. So what they've done is they've said that these plans, which are still called short-term limited duration health plans, uh, can which have- Which
0: is itself redundant. Yeah,
1: it's, it's a terrible name to begin with. But it, it's, it no longer really describes what these plans are. I think it's it's better to think of them as almost like a parallel market of individual major medical insurance. So the plans can now be any period less than a year. So the expectation is it'll be like 364 days. And they are renewable for up to 36 months. So you can have a short-term, limited-duration health plan for three years. <laughs> and uh, my colleague Robert Perra uh, at a sort of wry moment in his article about this said that it strains the common definitions of both of those terms, which That's... I think it's,
0: is, is factual and also kind of funny. It, and, and a fair way to put it. So, so what have we seen? I mean, there are a lot of states that are saying, yeah, we don't think this is a great idea and maybe it shouldn't be available in our state
2: and not just, you know, maybe the states you might think, but states with Republican governors. Um, Maryland comes to mind that are saying, no, these are for 3 months and that's all we're going to allow. That sort of I, it shouldn't really be a huge surprise, I guess, but I just remember, you know, back when there was more talk about what's going to happen to the ACA, we didn't hear from Governor Hogan for a long time in Maryland. And somebody, you know, so I kind of wondered what his position really was and now we've kind of seen him coming out a little stronger on the, against kind of the Trump administration.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, and the president's been talking this up a lot, and Secretary, Health Human Services Secretary Azar's been talking this up a lot as a way for people, who the the people who we've been talking about at this table a lot who really are getting hurt by the the Affordable Care Act are the people who, who buy their own insurance but make too much to get subsidies, and they are feeling the brunt of these huge premium increases. And this is supposedly a way to help those people, but, Margot, as you pointed out, if those people play in a recreational soccer league, or they have a pre-existing condition, it might not only not help them, but if healthy people leave this market to go buy these, you know, these less comprehensive plants that they say they want, it's going to leave more sick people in the exchanges and it's and if obviously if you're getting a subsidy you're not going to pay more cuz it's capped but if you're not getting a subsidy you're going to pay even more. Yeah, I, I think when you talk to critics of
1: this idea there they fall they sort of have two main lines of criticism. One is the one you just mentioned that it could destabilize the Obamacare market by pulling out kind of on the margin the healthiest people who could qualify for a short-term plan. If fewer of those people are in the Obamacare compliant market, then it kind of makes the risk pool worse, drives up the prices, and continues to drive away those healthy people. So, you know, that's sort of like a mild version of what we used to call a death spiral, where just the, the pool gets sicker, the prices get higher, and it becomes less appealing for the marginally healthy person to join. That's, I think, a little bit of an esoteric kind of policy concern, I think the other concern, and you hear this a lot from people in the consumer advocate and the disease advocacy community, is just the idea that people are not super sophisticated shoppers of insurance. Uh, we know this. There's a lot of uh, data suggesting this. Even in the Obamacare market, it's really hard to shop for insurance. And that these are plans that kind of on the face of it look like health insurance that's cheaper. It looks like a good deal to get a plan It says you can use any doctor and hospital you want. You know, it's even if it says it has like a $250,000 cap... You don't really expect that you're going to spend more than that and you don't take any prescription drugs or whatever. And, you know, there is a lot of documented evidence of people who are buying these plans over the last few years who have really gotten into a bad situation where they bought a plan. They got sick. And then the insurance company said retroactively like, oh, well, that was a preexisting condition. So we're not going to pay for care for your heart attack. Or, you know, someone has a stroke and they hit the limit and all of a sudden they're on the hook for tens of thousands of dollars. And, you know, this was the reason why the drafters of the Affordable Care Act wanted to put all these consumer protections into laws because they wanted health insurance to cover a kind of set of standard benefits that everyone can understand, that when you bought health insurance, there weren't these weird loopholes. And I spent some time looking through some of the plan documents for things that are on the market now in the short-term market. And in addition to these kind of broad categories, they don't cover drugs. They don't cover mental health treatment, which definitely can be a problem for people who may develop uh, pregnancy or health problems along the way. There also are all these little fine print things that are, I think are really hard to understand and price. Uh, things like I found one plan that said if you were admitted to the hospital on the weekend then your hospital stay wouldn't be covered. But if you were admitted, like, on a Monday, it would be. I mean, I don't think the average person really, like, read, couldn't read that, understand that, could control when they enter the hospital. Uh, there are exceptions for... Uh, particular kinds of medical problems. There are exceptions for particular kinds of activities. If you get hurt while you're intoxicated, then they won't pay for your treatment. So, you know, if you got drunk and fell down and broke your leg, then your broken leg would not be covered. You know, they just we just don't have these kinds of exceptions in the Obamacare compliant market. And so, I think there is a risk that people who feel like they can't afford really comprehensive insurance are going to sort of buy this stuff because it seems better than nothing and that some of them are going to end up really holding the bag.
0: So, Kimberly, I mean, it looks like they're – what the Trump administration is trying to do is go back to the the pre-Affordable Care Act market. Um, You know, I I think what happened is the the ACA created winners and losers, the pre-ACA market created a different set of winners and losers. So aren't we just sort of switching around who are the winners and who are the losers here?
3: Well, one quick thing to note is that short-term health insurance plans were still allowed under Obamacare up until 2016. So this was a regulation that was changed a couple years in once insurers kind of realized, oh, gee, people aren't signing up for these plans in as high volume as we expected. Um, That's right, and that's
0: when the Obama administration limited them to 90 days.
3: That's right, that's right. So they were looking at sort of more ways to bring people in. And I think the question kind of now comes that comes out is okay. Well, who's going to be joining these um, plans instead of the you know health insurance exchanges? The Department of Health and Human Services projects that. 200,000 who otherwise would be in Obamacare would switch to short-term plans. Otherwise, uh, probably uh, the CBO estimates probably about 2 million would end up signing up, but they would come from different areas of the market. So it sort of comes down to, well, would they otherwise be uninsured? Is this better than nothing? And that's sort of what the Trump administration is saying. Look, these these folks aren't going to be signing up for these plans. They're, there's not enough you know, advertising or incentive to get them in because they just they simply cost too much for them. So this is an alternative that we're offering them that, you know, we hope will at least offer some level of protection. That's the argument they're making. That something is better than
0: nothing.
2: And it seems that the choice to make that the alternative, though, is very much a choice to say, you know, we're, we're not in this to fix what's going on in Obamacare that is making these people have to pay a lot more money. Um, the choice is to say we're just going to give you an option outside of Obamacare rather than fixing what's going. And obviously, there've been tons of issues trying to fix it um, leading up to it. But it kind of seems like they're they're ma- they're showing where their priority is in this decision.
1: I think another important piece of context is that as part of the tax reform bill, the individual mandate penalty is going to go away for next year. And I think that's what makes this a little bit different from what the short term plans looked like in the Obama administration when they were allowed and they were allowed to. Uh, you know, have these same kind of exclusions and rules. But people who bought a short-term plan had to pay the short-term plan premium. And then they also had to pay a penalty to the IRS because the law said, this is not good enough. You You can buy this insurance if you want to, but it doesn't count as insurance from the perspective of the penalty. And so next year, all bets are off. No one has to pay any penalty. And so I think it does change the price calculus for some customers. If you're unsubsidized, if you have a pretty clean bill of health, before you were looking at cost of premium plus cost of mandate penalty and comparing that to the cost of comprehensive insurance. And now you're going to be looking at lower premium versus higher premium. And so I think that, you know, it is reasonable to expect that more people are going to sign up for these short-term plans now. They've also just gotten a huge boost of publicity. You know, the president is talking about them. And, you know, we see just we're all covering them. And so I, I think... How many people buy the plans and how many of them come from the Obamacare market is, I think, very much unclear. And and, and the answer matters for the overall policy equilibrium. But I do think it is certainly reasonable to expect that these are going to become a more popular option, a more heavily marketed option than they were in the past.
0: And I think we'll talk about this when the time comes, but they're going to go on sale the month before open enrollment. So... You know, who, who knows what, what? how that's going to sort of impact. Yeah.
1: And that's another thing consumer <clears throat> advocates are worried about, that, it's gonna, that there's going to be kind of uh, aggressive marketing that may be confusing to consumers. Like they know this is the time of year that they buy a health insurance and they're starting to get calls and ads and other kinds of inducements to buy a plan that they may think is Obamacare insurance and they'll only discover later isn't.
0: And and plus, as I think you pointed out in your story, Margo, brokers will have will will get more money from selling these plans, and they'll get from selling the more comprehensive plans just because of the way brokers are now getting paid by the plans. So, all right, I want to move on because we have lots more to cover. Um, and. Let's talk about the story everybody's talking about this week, which is Congressman Chris Collins, the New York Republican, who was indicted uh, on Wednesday on insider training charges. So we already knew that he was on the board of a publicly traded drug company, uh, as well as sitting on the House Energy and Commerce Committee, which oversees the drug industry. He is formally charged with tipping off his son about news that would cause the stock to fall before other investors. Apparently, that he got this news at the White House picnic in 2017, and there's Video of him on the phone. Um, House Speaker Paul Ryan has already suspended him from his committee seat. Although Congressman Collins says he's going to run for re-election, he's going to stay in. My question for the panel is: Could this case have any impact on the ability of politicians to be involved in industries they regulate, or is this just sort of another one-off? <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, I think it was sort of a surprise that he was able to be so involved and be on the Energy and Commerce Committee, and the same, you know, kind of goes for when when Tom Price the former health secretary um, decided to get involved in, and invest in this company as well um, because Chris Collins is on the board I think that elevated that a little bit where it was just a it, it it seemed like something that right you know, he wasn't maybe, just an investor he wasn't just an investor and it just seemed a large conflict of interest but it was allowed to move forward um, and so in that sense maybe there will be you know if that was to come up again that wouldn't happen but i am not sure it would change the idea that congressmen are investing all the time and they are voting on bills all the time that that af- affect those investments
0: I mean, they're, they're not supposed to, right? I mean, there there was this, this law that Congress passed several years ago about the, the Stock yeah, Act. But it's, but...
1: I think the Stock Act is not really strong enough to prevent any investment. I mean, it's very interesting to me. So I'm a journalist. I write about health The New York Times has an extremely strict ethics policy. I'm essentially not allowed to invest in any individual stocks related to industries that I cover. And I think that's a really good policy. Yeah, we're not either. You know, I don't want to be conflicted. (laughs) I want to be able to, you know, call it like I see it and not have financial entanglements. And I just, I think it is good that there are ethics rules and perhaps they should be stronger. But I just don't understand why members of Congress would want to be investing in individual stocks, especially if they, you know, Chris Collins is maintaining his innocence. He's pleaded not guilty and says that he is not engaged in this kind of insider trading. I mean, Obviously, this will be settled in a court of law, and we'll find out. But, you know, I think Price actually is a good example of someone who said, "Look, I didn't do anything wrong. I wasn't trying to influence the fate of these companies through my role in Congress in order to enrich myself." And just why would you want to have that stain on yourself? You know, why not just say, "I am not going to invest. I'll just put all my money in an index fund," and uh, which you know a lot of evidence suggests is the best way to invest your money
0: anyway, and just not have anyone question your ethical motivations. I, I just I mean, do, Kimberly, do you think that, that this sort of will will give pause to anyone else? Or are they just thinking, well, Chris Collins certainly talked about it. I mean, it's not it also wasn't that much of a secret. I don't know. <laughs> there are
3: often ethical scandals in Congress that seem to happen again and again and again. So yeah, it's unclear whether that's going to change anything. But it does look like something that, you know, the House will be looking at. Certainly. Yes.
1: Yeah, so and of course, insider trading is a crime all by itself, right? right? I mean, the fact that he's a congressman makes it more public. But the, the crime that he's being accused of is something that any uh, civilian
0: could also be charged with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, it, that you're not supposed if, if you're if you're on the board of a company and you find out something that's going to move the stock, you're not supposed to tell your family or like you're not supposed to tell your family first. I, <laughs> is, you
2: well, know. and he bragged so much about you know making billionaires out of people in Congress. so there wasn't you know there were more members that also invested as a result of his you talking know, this company up. and um, I, I found that I, I just was surprised they weren't more cautious about it. I mean this was a really tiny company. That is trying to make a multiple sclerosis drug, which is a really hard area. Um, They, you know, they didn't have you know some big profile of or, or of clinical evidence or anything like that yet. So, you know, the fact that they weren't more cautious going into this sort of surprised me too. And I, I don't think you really see. I think this is a unique case because you saw a member of Congress like basically trying to sell his buddies on this thing.
0: Well, this will also, I think, play out in the fall. Um, So next topic, sort of related to last topic, um, what to do about high drug prices, Chapter One Zillion. On Tuesday, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services announced a complicated and forgive me kind of nerdy set of changes affecting private health plans that provide Medicare coverage. Anna, you wrote about this. Can you explain, please, in English what (laughs) they did? I will do my
2: best um so these private health plans that julie mentioned are um under medicare advantage and so what um when trump released his blueprint to bring down drug prices in may part of it a, a piece of it it was very large said um, you know we would like to look into bringing some negotiation into um what's called part b so part d is in dog is where you get uh, Medicare beneficiaries get most of their, their drug those coverage Those are the outpatient from, drugs. Right, those are the outpatient drugs, you know, pill you're popping at home or something like that. And then the part B, as in boy, um, of Medicare is what covers your drugs you're taking, you know, a doctor needs to give you or you need to do in a hospital sort of outpatient clinic setting. and Cancer um, drugs and Cancer stuff like drugs, that. rheumatoid arthritis, so typically they're infused or maybe like an eye injection. You can't really do that on your own. Um, and so... Under Medicare Advantage, which is run by these private health plans, they're going to um, kind of set up a, a, a way for um, the insurers and and if they use pharmacy benefit managers to um, be able to to have some leverage over those Part B drugs, which there's no real leverage right now, so there's no negotiation going Basically, on. The,
0: the the price is what the drug company what says the drug it is. company
2: says it is, um, and. And so they, you know, in Part D there is there is some of this going on. Um, there is some negotiating on the the you know the insurers because private insurers also run Part D. So they're going to do this thing called step therapy, where the insurers can say, okay, um, for rheumatoid arthritis, we're going to start with you need to start with drug X and Y before you can take drug Z. Um, they don't have to do this; they can choose to do this, and then you know that could set off sort of a they could. Get drug makers to try to give bigger discounts to be the drug first X drug and X and Y, <laughs> not Z. Um, and then also uh, there's a possibility that they could hang that threat out there um, and say, we will do this if you don't get us bigger discounts. And so it's it's just a way, it's a, it's a, it's a tool they can use to leverage to get discounts. And it's sort of a, it's basically a test of this. And they're going to let ins- private insurers do it, see how it works out, and see if there's sort of any room to do that on a wider scale in Medicare.
0: So so my inbox is, says there's two basic reactions to this. One are all of the groups that say this is a small but important step. And the other one's mostly from consumer groups and the cancer society say this is actually a way that this is just going to make it harder for patients to get, the drugs that their doctors think are best for them. Which is it, <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, I, or is well, it
0: possibly both? I, yeah,
2: I'm sure. I, I'm sure there's a little of, of both in there. And you know, I I completely understand when I like I saw the American Cancer Society. You know, was saying there there are con- some some concerns when a cancer patient. It's bad enough to have cancer to have to then like try something that doesn't work first. Um, is you know, that doesn't seem like the best option. And so it seems like there are two possibilities on that is um maybe they, they won't there aren't many cancer drugs that have sort of the competition to be able to do this there are some that probably do though um, and supposedly you're, you're, you're supposed to be able to uh, file for an exemption um, and so your doctor you would do that and say they need this they need drug Z not, tr- not to go through X and Y first you're supposed to get an answer within 72 hours um, the thing I don't know is you know and say if you're if you're doing that in part D or something I don't know what the rate of success for that is. Um, So how easy will it really be? I'm not sure.
1: I think there's an important lesson in that tension, Julie, that you just raised, that some people are saying, you know, okay, this is a good way to drive down prices to improve negotiation. Other people are saying, whoa, 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 like I want to be able to take whatever drug I want whenever I want it, or whatever my doctor tells me is appropriate. Um, And I think if you're an advocate of single payer, Medicare for all kind of health care, you should really pay attention to this trade-off because the reality is is that there is no negotiation without walking away from the table. If you have a policy that you are going to cover every single drug no matter what, if the doctor says that they want it, then you have no ability to say to the manufacturer of that drug, I would like you to lower your price. Because if you go to the manufacturer of, say, uh, that eye drug and you say, your price of $1,000 is too much. I would like to pay $700 for your eye drug. And they say, No. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> then you're stuck paying a thousand dollars. Really, and you know any kind of negotiation. You know, if you're haggling at a flea market, you know this. Any kind of negotiation requires you to be able to walk away from the table. You need to be able to tell the maker of that eye drug either, no, if you don't go to seven hundred dollars, we are not covering your product. We will not buy it. Or we're going to put it way down on the list, and people are going to have to try a lot of other things first. And you kind of have to have that credible threat in order to have really effective negotiation. And the downside of that is that sometimes you're going to have to actually carry through with your threat and not cover certain drugs. And that does have effects on patient care, because there are patients who probably would benefit from the drug that doesn't get covered. And the Veterans Administration, I think, is a great example of this they do this all the time with their drugs. They have their own system. They have a fixed budget for how much they can spend on healthcare, And they cover a lot fewer drugs than Medicare covers. There are a lot of drugs that you just can't get if you're in the VA. And it means that the VA spends a lot less on drugs. They pay lower prices for drugs because they're willing to step away. But then there end up being a lot of people who have VA health care who buy a Medicare a drug benefit, too, so they can still get some of those drugs. So any kind of Medicare negotiation that works is going to have some of this kind of trade-off. And thinking about exactly how to implement and exactly how
0: much leverage the agency should have is going to be really difficult. Well, this is the, the frustration every time, you know, the, the Democrats in particular, and Trump actually did this on the campaign trail, too. Said you know, Medicare should negotiate drug prices. But as Margo said, if you can't say no, there's no teeth in the negotiation. And that's why the Congressional Budget Office, who has estimated this umpteen times, um, says there won't be any savings because you can't basically because you can't say, if you don't give us a discount, we're not going to put your drug on our formulary because they don't have a formulary.
1: So one feature of this plan that's kind of interesting is that This is allowing different plans to do this, and and probably not all of them will, and probably they will have different X, Ys, and Zs, depending on who they are. And so what Alex Azar, the Health and Human Services Secretary, said in his statement is uh, and in his interview with Anna is, you know, people are going to be able to choose if they end up in a plan that their drug isn't the first one, they could switch to a different plan. Uh, so it's kind of using the choice of health insurance as a way for consumers to navigate this, which I think is a kind of an indirect way of doing it. But it's quite similar to how...
0: And you can only change once a year. You can
1: only change once a year. But it's quite similar to how Medicare Part D works, too. So for the drugs that you get at the pharmacy, this is already standard practice. The only change here is for drugs that you get at the doctor.
2: And they could switch. You know, it doesn't have to be another Medicare Advantage plan. They also, if they don't want to deal with this whole s- step therapy, switch back into Medicare, regular Medicare, fee for service. Um, that at that one time, you know, although at that po- about, at that
0: point, they might not be able to get um, a Medicare, a, a private Medicare supplemental plan because you can only get that with no <laughs> pre existing condition restrictions when the first time you enter Medicare. Well,
2: I think um, you know there will be a lot of caveats like that, but it will be you know we'll be able to kind of see. What do consumers choose, break? Right? Because their savings are supposed to mean lower premium. So if that's the case, will they be willing to kind of navigate it and figure it out? Or do they
0: jump ship and it'll be an interesting experiment to see. All right. Finally, this week, I want to talk about a story that's gotten not very much attention, but really jumped out at me. Um, last week, New York Democratic Governor Andrew Cuomo announced that he would instruct his insurance regulators to reject premium increases linked to the elimination of the individual mandate. New York has, New York's insurers have proposed fairly significant um, increases for next year. This seemed weird to me. I don't think anybody doubts that without the individual mandate, Marga, you were talking about this earlier, the insurance pool is likely to get sicker and thus more expensive. And thus, insurers need to charge more money. What's going on here? Kimberly, you said you were looking at this, too. Yeah. So I saw it
3: pop up on Twitter and I thought, no way. Did he really say that? He must have said something different. Someone was just misinterpreting it. But no, I ended up watching the entire clip. And yes, uh, Governor Cuomo. They put out a press release. Yes. Yes. After the fact and all of that, um, he has directed. The insurance commissioner to reject any increases to health insurance that are tied to the individual mandate being repealed in 2019. Um, but during the speech, he, he was kind of going back and forth about, oh, we're going to stop the Trump sabotage. This is only political, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, this was passed through the tax law in Congress. So unless another law is passed or unless New York passes its only individual mandate, this is happening. Well, Um, yeah,
0: that would would be after that's what New Jersey did.
3: Exactly. Exactly. So a few (laughs) things are going on, however. The one thing I noticed is that when I looked at all the different rate proposals happening in New York, not every insurance company who was proposing a rate increase had any tie to the individual mandate. In fact, some of them specifically said that they... Expected no impact because of the repeal of the individual mandate. So perhaps he was getting at that, but that wasn't the way that he explained it. Um, And so the expectation would be, on average, that health insurance prices, premium prices would increase by about 24% if they counted the individual mandate. And without it, it would be about 12%. So you're saying a really big difference there. Um, And he's instructed them, you know, not to accept the changes. And insurance companies are pretty upset about it. I mean, they didn't believe me at first when I asked. Um, you know, for a reaction to the comments.
0: Can't I mean, they can just not play, right? They can say, OK, then we're just not going to offer coverage. Hey, the state. maybe maybe every state can do it now. <laughs> I mean, that's the big question.
3: Can't you say that then for insurers have to basically provide evidence for why they're asking for rate increases? They have, you know, very specific outlines of here's why we think this price is going to go up. And they believe that certain insurers believe that the individual mandate repeal will have an impact. Others don't. Apparently, New York is disagreeing. And I mean, there there is, there is a legitimate argument over how impactful the individual mandate was in getting people to enroll in health insurance. Um,
0: and I think you know, the consensus is now that it was less or that not that it was less so, but that Taking it away now will have less of an impact than if it had never been there at all. Am I, am I saying sure, that right? For sure, That's that what was the CEO
3: things. Yeah, yeah, and also, I mean, it's better to
1: have loved and lost. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Right, and well, well, and also because the way that the ACA is set up, if you already have a plan, and let's say you forget to switch, you automatically then go into the next one. So the fact that it's been you know going on for a few years is one thing. And even those who support the individual mandate say that it probably could have been stronger. It could have been more expensive. It could have had fewer exemptions. I mean, there were a lot of exemptions. There were a lot
0: of exemptions. I
3: I had one source who told me, you know, if you're paying the fine, you're doing it wrong (laughs) because there are so many ways out of this. So there is there is legitimate debate over that.
1: it really highlights the degree to which these insurance rate reviews are pretty political. Uh, you know, this the insurers submit their rates. Uh, the state regulators look at them. Usually the governor doesn't get involved. Usually it's like a state insurance commissioner. Um, and, you know, they frequently do push back against what the insurance companies ask for. And I think the insurance companies understand that it's like an opening bid and it's a negotiation. They get to
0: negotiate.
1: Right. <laughs> but I do think, Julie, you've pointed out the right thing, which is the whole... Obamacare structure relies on the voluntary participation of these four, well, not all for profit, but largely for profit insurers. And even the nonprofits have to be able to keep the lights on. And if you have political actors arbitrarily kind of hammering down on the prices that they charge, there will be a point at which the insurers will say, well, I can't make money at this price. You know, I'm trying to participate in this process. I'm being as honest as I can about the assumptions that explain my increase. But if we saw an epidemic around the country of governors just saying, no, insurance companies charge lower prices or you can't sell, I think... In some cases, you'll see the prices come down. But in other cases, you'll just see the insurers throw up their hands and say, OK, well, if I can't make money in this business, I don't want to be in this business. And so I do think potentially... And
0: it's the for-profit ones that are the first ones out. The nonprofits have missions to, you know, they're supposed to cover these people and they'll do everything they can to do it. It's the for-profits that say, bye, if I have shareholders to, to respond to, and I can't we do this. S-
1: we saw last year... Uh, you know in the first year of the trump presidency that there when there was a lot of policy uncertainty that carriers increased their prices in anticipation of the cost-sharing reductions potentially going away. They didn't know, but they thought, oh, let's just build in some cushion for that. They did go away, so they were perhaps wise to do that. And they also, some insurers but not all, last year built in some cushion for the individual mandate not being strongly enforced because the president had sent some signals that he was not going to enforce it. And so it's this weird thing now where some carriers actually like overcharged a little bit this year, and so they're asking for these smaller increases or they're not asking for an increase related to the individual mandate, whereas other ones feel like they got it just right. And now they're like, OK, well, this individual mandate repeal is something new. We need more money for that. So having a policy of not allowing an increase for that one reason seems a little bit unfair to the ones that got it closer to right last year.
0: And all, all health insurance is local. as we have all learned. All right. Well, that is uh, the news for this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week that we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Anna, you want to go first this week? Sure. Um, So
2: this is in The Atlantic by Ed Young. It's women more likely to survive heart attacks if treated by female doctors. And so, um, you know, what this this study that um, he highlights in here found was that women were, if they were treat, had a heart attack and then were treated by male doctors, they were more likely to die. Whereas men treated by male doctors or men treated by female doctors um, did a lot better. And, um, you know, there are many um many different avenues i think in this story that are really interesting to go down as to as to why they might that might be so i'm not going to try to summarize that i think just would be good to read it
0: yeah yet yet, a, yet another example of actually finally some some research on gender differences in healthcare margo
1: i i wanted to highlight a story from propublica the author is isaac arnsdorf and the it's called the shadow rulers of the va and this is just a kind of amazing and uh scrupulously fair and scrupulously well-reported story about how Three kind of rich members of Trump's Mar-a-Lago club in Florida have uh, become the sort of de facto advisory board for the Veterans Administration and have had a very enormous influence on policy, on personnel, are constantly consulted by the former head of the VA and now the new head of the VA, uh, are included in meetings. And uh, one of uh, Joanne's reporters uh, Arthur Allen had written about one piece of this story, and we talked about it on the podcast, which was that they were trying to interfere with the procurement of an electronic health record True. for the whole VA system. One of these guys was a doctor and had a bad experience personally with the company and so didn't want the government contract to go through. But this article documents a lot of other policy areas where these guys were really influential. And, you know, I think... And they don't. Any of them
0: have experience. In this. No,
1: one of them is a physician, but the other two are just kind of executives. And uh, one of them is ahead
0: of Marvel Entertainment, right? <laughs> yeah.
1: And there were some indications that maybe there was some inside dealing too, where uh, you know one of the guys had a relative who was involved in a company that would benefit, and then there was also something related to the Marvel comics on the stock uh, exchange floor. Uh, but I think it, it's a couple of things. Uh, when we talked about the Politico story, Alice Olstein, our colleague, mentioned that, you know, this is why people have long been concerned about the Mar-a-Lago and the idea that people can essentially pay for access to the president because it means that people have uh, the ability to influence public policy through these not normal channels and, and to whom the president may have some kind of uh, financial relationship or indebtedness. Um, but also I think it highlights... Uh, The challenges that the Trump administration has had finding qualified personnel, Uh, you know, the VA is is one of the biggest government agencies. It's really important. It delivers really important services to a population that the president really cares about. And the fact that he went to some friends of his from his club to play this really important role as opposed to going to people who are really experienced in benefits administration and health care and health insurance, I think shows that he just didn't have a big Rolodex of people
0: to go to. Yes, it's quite the story. Kimberly.
3: Yes, um, mine is from the Washington Post by Joel Achenbach, and it's uh, titled "A Huge Clinical Trial Collapses and Research on Alcohol Remains Befuddling." Um, Just a little kind of reminder of of what went on here. Um, There was um, an investigation after after it came to light that the um, alcohol industry had impacted um, NIH research on alcohol and had actually paid for it and been invested in how it would turn out. Um, So they. Ha- the NIH looked into it. They found out that it happened and they decided to uh, pull the study away. But uh, one of the things that um, is kind of an open-ended question now is, so what does research on alcohol tell us Um they're, uh, you know, historically people have always said, oh, one a day is okay for females, good two for a day, you. For or a wild, good for, good for you, good for your heart. Yeah, red wine, they've said. Um, but if you look at patterns across the world and even in the U.S., alcohol-related deaths have really been on the rise. The way that um, wine is marketed to women is uh, particularly aggressive. And um, while all this is happening, states are removing restrictions on alcohol. So the question is, um, is this something for public health officials to look at? Um, are you just. And they're
0: offering they're offering samples at at drug <laughs>
3: I was before the
0: podcast I was
3: telling Julie about how um I had visited a CVS in um Chicago. And yes, they were offering vodka samples there. Um, So every state is different in terms of alcohol restrictions. But uh, public health officials, and I've been reporting on this for the Washington Examiner a bunch, um, but they have been looking at, you know, is this something that we should look to restrict a little bit more? Should we apply some of the same policies that we used on tobacco to alcohol? And so that's the
0: kind of thing that research on alcohol would help to inform also more to come on that. Well, my uh, extra credit this week is a story from Alana Gordon of WHYY in Philadelphia that ran on NPR. It's part of our NPR-KHN a local public radio project. It's called Doctors with Disabilities Push for Culture Change in Medicine. It's about how medicine's kind of the last frontier in terms of accepting people with disabilities, which is really a shame because I get all kinds of stories about patients with disabilities having difficult getting even the most routine kinds of health care. It might well help if there were more doctors and nurses with disabilities who could identify with some of the problems. And indeed, it, it looks like, you know, finally medicine is, is becoming a little bit more accepting of people with disabilities acting as medical professionals. So that is it for today. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We're at health all one word, at kff.org or Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Anna Edney. At Sanger Katz. At Leonard KL. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.